0: Let me pray. Father, thank you for gathering us this morning around your word. We pray as we do every Tuesday morning and multiple times throughout the week, Sunday morning as well, that you would make us and fashion us as a people according to the image of your son. And we know that that happens according to your word. As we read it together, as we study it, as we um, try to internalize it and integrate it into our lives. And we pray, Father, that this morning would move us in a step towards that, we pray specifically that you would make us men who enact your kingdom, who love your kingdom, um, Lord, who seek it first above all things, and we pray, God, that you would give us the grace to do so, that you would remind us that we have a king who not only reigns above us, but who stood below us, who died for our sins, who, um, Father, who suffered, was buried, was raised again, that we might have life eternally in union with you. We pray, Father, that you would encourage our hearts this day with the good news of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Come on in and sit down. Uh, I met my, uh, my wife, Jada, for the first time um, our freshman year at the University of Tennessee in what was known as the freshman courtyard. Big fireworks went off. Now, actually, she does not even remember meeting me at all. <laughs> So I left uh, no, no lasting impression on her. Hard to believe I know, right? Um, I think she was sick or something, maybe. But maybe you had this experience in dating. When we started dating, we started dating two years later. Um, uh, dating at first was, and this is going to sound bad, but dating was really fun. All right, It was light. Um, there was no pressure, no expectations. Um, kind of got together, and we were in the moment. And we did whatever we wanted to. So, you know, want to go through a Frisbee in the park? Absolutely, let's go do that. Let's catch dinner in a movie, yada, yada, yada. And um, but something happened within our relationship that changed kind of the nature or uh, the feel of the relationship itself. And that is that we had, at some point we had the talk, right? Now I'm not sure who initiated it, but um, at some point we started to articulate and to define our relationship. And this meant that we started addressing, even vaguely, our expectations for what we hoped the future would become. And we took upon ourselves titles, or thought about titles that would sort of ratify those expectations. So the questions we asked were, you know, what are we now? Are we we dating? Are we dating exclusively, boyfriend or girlfriend? What are we? Where where is this relationship going? Why in the world did you not call me last night when you got in, whatever, you know? (laughs) I'm going to call this the, I think most relationships have this moment. This is the apocalyptic moment of a relationship. Not because at this moment the relationship becomes all doom and gloom, but because at that moment when you start peering into the future and you start addressing the ends, the outcomes, the goals of what you hope the relationship might be, it's at that moment that you start to feel the weight of everything a little bit more. And once, I think you know this, once you have that moment, it's really hard to go back and pretend like it never happened because the relationship going forward operates with this larger story in view. There is not only the present to think about, there is also the future as well. Now in case you hear me saying that's a bad thing, I wanna clarify this moment for, just for a moment. Uh, that's a good thing, it's called maturity, 15 years of marriage later, four kids, happy we had the talk. But it certainly changed the feel of the relationship. And I want to parallel that this morning, um, as cheeky as it sounds, with how we read the book of Daniel. Because just like in a dating relationship, there's sort of two experiences that take place that, that are... Um, that. I don't know, that are sort of drawn apart by that moment where you start articulating the ends. Reading Daniel has that same feel to it. So the first part of Daniel, the first six chapters that we've been through so far, if you've been with us, is focused on anecdotes. It's focused on stories. It's focused on memorable, what appear to be spontaneous moments in the life of Daniel and his friends. Those are the first six chapters. That's the stuff, the part of Daniel that tends to stand out to you as a kid. So it's the lion's den. It's the fiery furnace. It's the mysterious hand that writes in the wall. It's Daniel refusing to eat the king's food and looking spectacular as a result. The first six chapters of Daniel preaches to us uh, that God is in control in spite of what Present appearances look like, in spite of the fact that the people of God were in exile in an evil city called Babylon, that God Himself was providing for them and even causing them to prosper in the midst of the city. But now we come to Daniel chapter 7 through 12, and if you'll notice as we start reading, those whimsical anecdotes and the memorable stories are no more. Uh, Now there is mystery. Uh, now there is a new seriousness. There are these strange, um, uh, strange, vague visions of the future. There is anxiety on Daniel's part, which we haven't experienced at all before. Anxiety in a troubled spirit within Daniel as he receives these visions and begins to ponder what they might mean for his life. And there's perplexity for us as readers as we try to understand where God is taking us. In other words, I'm just trying to give you the big scope of the book for a moment this morning because Daniel is really two books in one. The simplicity of the first six chapters, the simplicity that focuses on the present, now gives way to the mystery of these next six chapters that focus primarily on visions of the future. So if you're taking notes, if you were with us especially last fall, beginning in chapter 7, we are stepping back into the realm of apocalyptic literature. We are back into, this is the revelation of the Old Testament, and it means, if you are with us, you'll notice, it means that what we're doing now is we are trying to peel back the facade of what is taking place on the surface of worldly activity. And we are asking, as it were, the DTR questions, the defining the relationship type questions. What does all of this mean? What does the future hold? Where is the story go- going? What are the ultimate ends in the relationship between God and his people? As one commentator put it, we move from human evil in chapters 1 through 6 to the perverse spiritual forces that stand behind human evil in chapters 7 through 12. We move from deliverance out of a burning furnace in a lion's den to salvation from the power of death itself. So the curtain opens this morning on Daniel part two. We start here in chapter seven and the bigger story now comes into view and with that story, a new gravitas, a new seriousness, both for Daniel and for us as readers. Let's read together Daniel chapter seven. We're gonna read the whole chapter this morning. It's a lengthy chapter. But there's not really a part of it that we could cut out to to give us a synopsis. We need the whole thing this morning. Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. You have it there in your handout. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Four great beasts came out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground, and it was made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side, It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouse speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed. His body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its foot, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater still than all its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. To the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, Out of this kingdom ten kingdoms shall rise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down the three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. So there is a lot here this morning, obviously. Um, a lot of interest, and a lot that gets picked up in the New Testament, especially in the apocalyptic literature. So if you were with us in Revelation, you'll notice some of the same language, the beasts, sort of the visual representation of the beast, the Son of Man, the title that Jesus himself takes throughout the Gospels, it's all here, okay? Um, what I'd like to do this morning is, um, is, is kind of simplify it for us. The passage is mainly about four beasts, and it's about two divine figures, The Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. And here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to just make four observations about the beasts that are practical for us. Four observations about the beasts themselves. And then I'd like to make two observations about the kingdom of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. Four observations about the beasts. Two observations about the kingdom of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, who end up conquering the beasts. Okay? So, first, the beasts. Well, who are the beasts in the passage? (laughs) Verse 17 gives us some clue. Verse 17 says in the interpretation of the matter that these are four kings, or better yet, we can think of them as four kingdoms, four political empires that emerge or become visible on the earth. Now here's the tricky part, I think. If you remember how apocalyptic literature works, there are typically two kinds of fulfillment In apocalyptic literature, this is also true in prophetic literature, but prophetic literature tends to operate more word-based, and apocalyptic literature tends to operate more vision or imagery-based, okay? There are typically two kinds of fulfillment. One is a particular, often short-term fulfillment. We'll call it a near-horizon fulfillment, okay? A near-horizon fulfillment, an immediate one. And then there is typically a general, often longer-term fulfillment or a far-horizon fulfillment. So, for example, when we apply that to this passage, conservative scholars have long seen the four beasts here or identified the four beasts here as the four political empires that emerged around the era of Daniel himself. So what are those? Well, I think Paul mentioned them in chapter 2. They're, they're uh, Babylon. After Babylon comes what? We we, we just went there in Daniel 5 and 6. Persia, yeah, Medo-Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. Okay, that would be an example of a near horizon fulfillment if the correspondence rings true. But the vision also describes a situation where you have God's final victory over evil, which, if you know well, does not come with the collapse of Rome. So we're left to expect another more long-range, complete fulfillment that extends into the future at some point. So in, in this case, whatever may have been in view immediately for Daniel, this passage becomes a sweeping vision about human kingdoms and human empires and human governance in general throughout world history. And it's from that perspective, from the far horizon point of view, that I want to sort of camp this morning and ask the question, what is it that the four beasts teach us about the world's political aspirations and political kingdoms? Four observations this morning. The first is this. The kingdoms that emerge in the passage are all chaotic and unstable. They are chaotic and unstable. So what does Daniel see first in verse 2? It says, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and, and four beasts arose out of the sea. Now, some of you probably went to the ocean for spring break. If you had a spring break at all, You maybe you remember those days going to the ocean. But, but, but the ancient world did not consider the ocean or the sea a friendly place. The sea was a terrifying place. The sea was mysterious and it was uncontrollable. In fact, many of the primitive creation stories involve a divine figure of, of some sort putting down the chaos of the sea. And what Daniel sees here is these winds blowing in a turbulent nonlinear fashion. So don't just think big waves like hurricane-level waves. Think like chaos from all direction on the dark water. And what the Bible is telling us is that this is the place where worldly kingdoms are situated. Worldly empires are at home here within the context of instability and chaos. That's observation number one. Don't expect stability from political kingdoms. Observation number two. The kingdoms in the passage all exhibit elements of both God's design and sin's perversion. Kingdoms in the, in the passage all exhibit elements of both God's design and sin's perversion. How so? Well, notice the appearance. The first one is like a lion. You've seen a lion before, maybe on the Discovery Channel, something else. Thumbs up, you get that, right? Like God made lions, <laughs> right? But then this lion has eagle's wings. Okay, that's weird, right? That's strange. And then he stood on two feet like a man. That is, God didn't make lions like that right? The second beast, it's like a bear. You know what that means? It ain't a bear. It's like a bear and it's consuming everything voraciously as if it's rabid or diseased. And you can make those comparisons onto the fourth beast and the vision here is of creatures that are somewhat recognizable as normative animals but to put it in a sophisticated way they are also gross and weird, right? Like you look at them, and your immediately sort of internal visceral reaction is one of repulsion. What is the vision teaching us? It is true that each empire exhibits something of God's grace and design, every one of them. There is some exhibition in every human kingdom, in every one of the beasts, of civility and care and respect. truth, We call that common grace. The way that Jesus himself puts it in the Sermon on the Mount is that God makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. But in the image there is also deep perversion as well. And I want you to say that the perversion is what most defines each beast. So it's not enough to say that all kingdoms are tainted by pride and violence and greed and an appetite for power, etc., But those perversions, the passage teaches us, ultimately even misdirect the good things that are inherent in the kingdoms. There are good things, but they're misdirected by the perversions of the empires themselves. Okay? This is the third observation. It brings us sort of, we're moving along. Here it is. The passage teaches us that some kingdoms are a lot worse than others. There are some political empires and entities that are worse than others. How do we know that? Clearly in the passage, the fourth beast with its perversive like heads coming out, of I mean this is like an alien sort of thought, horns coming out speaking, the fourth beast is clearly the worst of the four. So an important implication for us to draw from this this morning would be something like this. Just because all kingdoms and political entities exhibit Elements of perversion. It does not mean that we should not care about the extent of those perversions. Some are worse than others. In some, the violation of shalom, of God's intent and design for human flourishing, is more egregious and more heinous than others. So so yes, we can say on one hand, just to pick two kingdoms out, current ones, that that, uh, the nation of Switzerland and North Korea are both tainted by pride and by sin and by brokenness, even the great country of Texas, the great Republic of Texas, it would be true of. But we can also say by all appearances at least, North Korea as a political entity has vandalized God's design for human flourishing in much more egregious ways. You say, Chad, well how do you judge that? Well, look at verse 25 with me. Verse 25 describes the attitude of the fourth beast. It says, He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and he shall think to change the times and the law. The fourth beast is picked out as the most egregious and most heinous because The fourth beast openly declares war on God and his people and he assumes the authority of God for himself. What would that look like? Well, you don't have to go very far. Just imagine for a moment the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century for a start. So you know this, but totalitarianism is the belief that the state itself, the political entity itself, the empire itself has no limits to its authority. That it has the power to play God. That it has the power to regulate every sphere of human life, both public and private. And and this is shorthand for what we see here. The beast thinks that he has the power to change, what? The law and the times. That he has the power to change the created structures embedded in the very fabric of reality. He is playing God. What does that experiment yielded in the 20th century? You say some names. Stalin, Hitler, Mao. Totalitarian regimes of the 20th century have proved to be the most barbaric, perhaps ever, in in human history in terms of violating God's design for shalom, for human flourishing. It doesn't say that here, but it does say, look, this beast will devour the earth and break it to pieces, which means it will undo creation Itself. What am I saying? Well, I, I, want you to, I want us to be able to say two things this morning as we look at the beast. I want us to be able to say, yes, it's true that every political entity, every empire, every kingdom is tainted by sin. But that does not mean that we say that they're all the same. <laughs> there are some that are worse than others in the severity of their corruption. And God judges them that way, even here in this passage. Observation four about the beasts this morning important as well. (laughs) None of the kingdoms in the passage, none of the beasts, none of the kingdoms are identical to or ever become the kingdom of God. That is to say, it's really obvious but really important, none of the beasts end up over time morphing into God's kingdom. Turn it back into us, even our beloved country, the height of whatever you consider to be its purity and majesties, I think probably 1940s Norman Rockwell-esque moments. Even then, none of the worldly political kingdoms are God's primary focus in the passage. Primary agents in the passage. So what then is God's primary focus? What is the passage really about if it's not about these kingdoms emerging and falling? Well, the passage is about the kingdom of God, right? And I want to just say two things about the kingdom of God that we learn from the passage. The first is that I want you to notice the kingdom of God is always in two places at once. The kingdom of God is in two places at once. What are those two places? The first place that we find the kingdom of God is above the kingdoms of the world. The kingdom of God resides above the kingdoms of the world. So, in verse 13, look there with me. Look at verse 13 with me. In verse 13, Daniel sees the Son of Man come. But notice the Son of Man does not come from the sea. Where does he come from? What does it say? He comes from the clouds. Now, that's an important visual point, but it has theological import. Because in the ancient world, just as the sea was the place of chaos and turbulence, the clouds were the place of divine rain and peace. Exodus 13, 21. How does God lead his people through the desert? By, by a pillar of cloud. In Psalm 104, the psalmist says that God makes the clouds his chariots and rides on the w- wings of the wind. Isaiah 19:1, Isaiah writes, Behold, the Lord is coming and he is riding on a swift cloud. In Acts 1-9, after the resurrection, and Jesus ascends into heaven, what do his disciples see? Luke says it this way. As they were looking up, Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. When Jesus predicts his return, how does he visually describe it? Matthew 24-40, they will see the Son of Man, and he will be coming on the clouds of heaven in power and in glory. You see, the clouds, the sky was the place where God ruled. Even now, if you ask a kid, never told a kid anything about heaven, but if you said, where is heaven, where would they point? They would point up, not because God is there spatially or geographically, because they intuitively know that God is there reverently. He belongs there reverently. Over all the kingdoms of the earth, over all the chaos in our lives, over all the political realities that we face, he is on his throne in the control room of reality, which is in the heavens. That's the first place where God's kingdom is located, above all. Where's the second? Well, notice in verse 13, the Son of Man receives the kingdom from the ancient of days. He receives the kingdom from the clouds. And what does the kingdom that's given to him include? What does it include? It includes citizens, right? It includes peoples, and where in particular are the peoples from? What does it say? From all languages and tribes and nations. These are the saints, the citizens of the Most High. Here's the way to think about it. The kingdom is present in two places. The kingdom is present in the place where the king himself resides. In the throne room, as it were, the place where his rule originates The kingdom is also present in the place where a king's rule is enacted. The place where a king's people serve and obey him, where his will is being done as we pray, on earth as it is in heaven. And where is that today? Well, the Bible says it's everywhere. Under the very ends of the earth, within every tribe and language and empire, that is to say, God's kingdom is located not only above all, but also within every worldly political reality. So we can say it like this. China is not the kingdom of God. No surprises there. But God's kingdom is present this morning in China. South Sudan is not the kingdom of God, but God's kingdom is present and extending and growing in that political reality this morning. The United States is not the kingdom of God. But God's kingdom is present here this morning as you go out and enact the king's will wherever he sends you today. Think about this. All over the world this morning, wherever men and women and children are, are getting up and praying and reading their Bible and longing to serve God in some of the worst political situations imaginable, the kingdom of God is present there and it's growing. Even to the chagrin Of the beasts. Now, one day the Bible tells us heaven, that's the king's throne room, and earth, the king's territory, will be joined in such a way that there'll be no space in between and no rivals to contest his kingship. But until that day, you are God's kingdom on earth. You are God's kingdom on earth. Did you know that? You are the kingdom of the ancient of days this morning that is being enacted. You are this passage, you are the long horizon fulfillment that extends through world history until as Isaiah says, the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And there is no greater thing, there's no greater political movement or empire building strategy that you can be a part of than to enact in all that you do the will and goodness of the ancient of days. So how do we do that? Last observation this morning. The only way to access and enact God's kingdom, according to the passage, is through the Son of Man. The only way to access and enact the kingdom of God is through the Son of Man. We see that in the vision, the kingdom is given to him alone and then to the saints of the Most High, but only through him. So who is the Son of Man? Well, I think in your imagination we've already jumped ahead to Jesus, right? But I want you to see how Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man in Luke 9. He's talking to his disciples, and he says this. The Son of Man, Now, and maybe you've thought about this before, but when Jesus says the Son of Man, he's not saying, look, I'm the Son of a Man. He is taking a divine title from here in Daniel 7, and he's identifying with that title. I am the Son of Man from Daniel 7. I am the King that's come. And Jesus says in Luke 9 this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed, and on the third day be raised again. Jesus is taking unto himself the figure, the divine figure of Daniel 7, but with a great twist. He is saying that the fulfillment of this vision in the gospel, the true far-horizon fulfillment, is that in order to receive the kingdom from the ancient of days and to bring the whole world into it, the Son of Man must suffer and die not only for the corruption of political realities, but for the corruption that's inherent in every human heart. That is to say, before Jesus ever ascends to the clouds, he's trying to teach his disciples this, that he has to first descend to the grave. He has to descend into the chaotic sea of your sin and condemnation to lift us out of the dominion of that sin and bring us into the kingdom of the ancient of days where shalom and peace rule. In seminary, I had a professor who told a story of an incident that happened in his hometown. You may have told this before, but two, uh, two brothers were playing, West Virginia coal mining town. They were playing on some sandbakes that sort of characterized um, some of the outlying places of that town. And as they were playing, they hit, um, they hit a, a sinkhole. And the brothers fell into the sinkhole, and as you know what happens, the sand from the, the higher ground began to sort of flow into the lower part of the sinkhole. And the boys did not return home for summer, for supper, excuse me. And, and so uh, the, the town organized a search party to go out and look for these boys. And it took a long time, but finally they found the younger brother. They found him covered in sand up to his shoulders and he was unconscious. And they immediately sort of tried to wake him up and they woke him up and the first question they asked him is where is your older brother? We can't find him anywhere. And he said, he is beneath me. I'm standing on his shoulders. So the younger brother, the older brother was beneath the younger, and at that point he was buried in a tomb of sand. And at some point, that older brother realized that the only way for him to save his younger brother was to hoist him on his shoulders, to sacrifice his own life in order to lift him to safety. The great twist when Jesus talks about becoming the, the, the Son of Man in the gospel is that before he ever receives the kingdom from the clouds as our king, He first becomes our older brother, who came and stood beneath us in the pit and the grave of our sin and condemnation, to be judged unto our death, to stand for us and contend against our enemies, that we might stand on his shoulders and breathe forever the life of his kingdom. And what does that mean for us this morning? How do we go out and actually enact the kingdom of the ancient of days? Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to stand on the shoulders of Jesus and find rest in him. We have to rest in him. We receive his mercy into our own sin-corrupt and grace-starved hearts so that we might preach that same mercy to a sin-corrupt and grace-starved chaotic world. And I just want you to know, as Christians, it's so true throughout, throughout the whole book of Daniel. As Christians, there is a unique calling that we occupy within the, uh, the, the turbulent political realities of our time. And it's the same calling that Daniel and Israel occupied when they were thrust into Babylon, and that is not to get swept up as the disciples were into our own political aspirations or partisan leanings. But instead, it's to live as a prophetic people. To live as prophets. That is, to proclaim in word and deed, in what we do and what we say, that Jesus alone, the Son of Man alone, is the hope of the world. The greatest gift that Daniel and the people of Israel had to offer Babylon, the greatest gift that the church has to offer any political reality in which it lives is the good news that the Son of Man came and suffered and died to transform sinners into saints and to ultimately subdue the chaos within us and around us and bring the world into the kingdom of God. It's our job to rest in Him and to pray that His kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word this morning in Daniel 7. A lot that's mysterious here, a lot of details that probably didn't get to this morning, but we do pray, O God, that that we would be occupied with your kingdom above all else. We would be occupied with the king, the son of man, who who wasn't content just to receive the kingdom from the clouds, but who would come and actually be buried in the chaos of our sea and our turbulence, O Lord, to rescue us to deliver us, Father, and to give us a message and a hope. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to enact that today in the way that we love mercy, O oh Lord, love you and the way that we practice justice, the way that we do our work and discharge our duties as husbands and fathers and friends and neighbors. Help us, we pray. We cry out for, you, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.